but so anyways, this guy date raped me and it was, I knew it happened. And, um, pretty much like he gave me, he had been drinking this drink and he, we were going to go to another location and he told me to finish his drink. And I looked at him, but I partied with this guy a lot of times before. And so I did it. And as soon as, as soon as I did it, I looked at him and I was like, that tasted really salty. And I had been date raped before and I remembered the taste and I walked out of the room to go to my shoes because we were going to leave as soon as we'd done that shot. And I don't remember the next 12 hours. Oh my God. And the things that happened to me during that or that I am aware of are really intense and it really affected my life. And the hardest part about it was that afterwards no one believed me because I was the party chick and I knew everyone and I knew this person and the worst thing that happened was like this guy after I had been date raped I was in the back of his car or whatever and I had like peed my skirt in his car and he got mad at me and I don't remember any of this but he uh he dropped me off at another guy's house because he didn't want to deal with me. And he had told this guy some sort of story about how he was helping me because I had gotten too fucked up. Katie Deegan had a chaotic upbringing riddled with abuse, social service intervention, and bullying. She never met her father and cared for her drug-addicted mother, which meant growing up quickly in a great deal of stress. Her life had been a humbling experience of searching for self-worth, but she craved more, more love and honesty towards herself and more confidence to help others do the same. That's why she created Sober Saturdays in 2018. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Sobiz Doe podcast. I am extremely, extremely blessed to be here with you guys today in my recovery, continuing to share great stories and great resources with the recovery community. I want to thank everyone out there who has been continuously supportive with showing love and support for Sober is Dope and all other podcasts in recovery and all other people that's within recovery. We're one community and we're one voice and one message. Today, I am extremely inspired to talk about someone who I admire dearly. Katie Deegan is the founder of Sober Saturdays and she is extremely creative. What I particularly love about Katie is her resilience and her ability to overcome adversity and her continued exploration within herself to find the best person within 
and she brings that out to us in so many ways. Katie is involved in so many different things in the recovery community, and I'm just truly inspired by her entrepreneurial spirit and her spirit of creativity. She's into so much and she brings many people together. She has the ability to reach out across all platforms and bring people into the fold. She has a real soft heart for her family and her friends. And despite being a victim of abuse at a young age, a victim of rape and dealing with the embarrassment and going through that darkness on her own, she was able to overcome that as as a champion, and she definitely has a victorious mindset. And listen, ladies and gentlemen, this is why we do the Sober is Dope podcast because we all have our struggles. But you know, once in a while, we'll come across an extremely exceptional human being like Katie, who just never really had a fear shake from a young kid all the way up into her adulthood. She had to overcome extreme obstacles. You're going to find a lot of value in her story and a lot of inspiration. I think she's extremely courageous. I think she's a star and I'm just happy to be her friend. I'm happy that my sobriety brought me into her life and it's just an honor to have her on the Sober is Dope podcast today. So ladies and gentlemen, enjoy our talk with Katie Deegan, the founder of Sober Saturdays. And please enjoy, and I'll catch you guys on the other side. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Sober is Dope podcast. I'm your host, Pop Buchanan. And today we have an extremely special guest. This woman has been changing the game. She touched me early in my process when I started um, being online, and I'm really affected by her message. We have Katie Deegan on the line, the owner and CEO of Sober Saturdays. Katie, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. I'm great. Super happy to be here. Um, this has been a long time coming, and I'm stoked we got it organized, and here we are. Here we are. So, yeah. Katie, you're doing so much in the recovery community, and you're so passionate, and that's the one thing yeah. that always stood out to me. Can mm-hmm. you give us an idea of your origin story, where it all began for you, and how you found your recovery, and where mm-hmm. it all started? Yeah, so it's a big story. Um yeah, so when I was little, I guess, how do I even begin this story? You, you know when you just think about your life and you're like, where yeah. do I begin? Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm 28 years old. I grew up in Van- or I grew up in Kelowna, BC for some of my life. Um, my mom had me when she was super young. So she was 15 when she had me, had my sister when she was 17. Um, so she didn't really take care of us a lot uh, when we were little. So I lived with my grandparents for a little bit. And then um, there was like a moment in time where my mom got married and it was for three years. I'm just gonna get into it, we're doing it. And um, yeah, so for those three years, me and my sister, my little sister moved to Alberta, which is like another province in Canada um, to, yeah, to live with my mom and her new husband. However, this guy was like super, super abusive. And it wasn't just like, like manipulation or verbal abuse. It was like super physical and like, really, really intense. And, um, I went from just like being a kid living with my grandparents to obviously being a parent and raising my siblings. So, um, my mom has been addicted to drugs my entire life. She's also been an alcoholic for my entire life. 
Um, and not just my mom. So like she's got two older brothers and they're both have been in and out of rehab my entire life. And um, also her, my grand, like, so her parents, sisters, kids, like everyone, like all of her cousins, they all party together. And so I grew up surrounded in addiction and just like with young, sick, mentally, like ill people. And um, so I found, yeah. So I guess like living with my mom was really, really intense. Um, my stepdad was super abusive and she wouldn't leave essentially. And so I kind of became the parent. I started like, um, yeah, like having to make sure my siblings would get ready for school, like making their lunches, like making sure all this stuff happened. And then also just making sure that we were safe because my stepdad, yeah, he would, he would really abuse us. So like he would lock my sister and I in the basement or like he would also, he would often try and commit suicide in front of us. And this was like something he did um, to almost, I think, to feel like we would care or something to, if we tried to stop him. And so like being children, like at this point in time, I'm in grade two and my siblings are all younger than me. So my mom's had two kids, two more kids with this guy. So there's four of us and I'm the adult, um, which is crazy. Right. Um, and so he would do just like really intense things like try and jump out of the vehicle while we were driving or like threaten to jump off like the top story of our house with like my infant baby brothers and like just really, really intense and fucked up shit, if I'm being honest. Like, and as a child, you don't really know what's happening to you. You're kind of just trying to be a kid. So like I would go to school and I wouldn't act like what was happening at home affected me, or at least I would think that I wasn't acting in that sense. But there was like a, a moment in time after three years of this sort of abuse where I was getting sick of it and the police were over at our house every single weekend and um, it was normal. It got to a point where um, they, they didn't take us seriously anymore. Like I remember when like the abuse first started happening, my, my mom would be like, go to the neighbors and I would grab all my siblings and I would go to the neighbor's house. And like the first few times, you know, they let us in um, and they let us use their phone and they let us call the police. Um, but after this happening so often, everyone stopped answering us and everyone stopped taking us seriously. And as a child, when you start to notice this energy shift, even though your safety isn't being prioritized, you start to think of other ways to help yourself and your siblings. And so a lot of the time I would do things like when it snowed, I would shovel all the driveways in my neighborhood to make money. Then I would save that money and I would try and run away with my siblings. And like, obviously every time we got caught, I wasn't very tricky. I would wait till they were fighting and then I would try and like get lost. Um, but so the way that I ended up, how I like to say, like saving my, me and my siblings was by, um, yeah, one time like the cops were over at our house and we, I gave them a tour of everything that used to be there, but was now broken. So like the problem with my stepdad is that he came from money. And so it was very easy to mask what was going on. And, um, so yeah, I just like kind of gave him a, the police a tour of the house and everything that he had broken or like had once been there and wasn't anymore. And I remember my little sister being upset because she was like, you're not supposed to be showing them this stuff. You know what I mean? But I just knew in the depths of my being, even though I was only in like grade three, that like I needed to show them this. And um, the next day we went to sleep that night at home after everything cooled down. And the next day me and my sister went to school my brothers stayed home and that day at school, social services came and picked me up and picked my sister up and they took us away to live with my grandparents in BC. Um, we never got to see my brothers 
We never got to grab any of the stuff from our house. We never got to say bye to our mom. We never got to talk to anyone about what had happened to us. Uh, we just were taken away. And it was really hard because like, I, I knew that I had saved us from a situation. Um, but the problem with my stepdad was that he was the parent of my brothers and he also had more money than my family did. And so he, he was able to keep my brothers. And so it separated all of us siblings and me and my sister were with my grandparents and my siblings stayed with him. And this was really hard for me because I didn't understand how someone so evil could be a parent of children. Like I just didn't understand. And like, as a child, no one's really listening to you, even though you're, you've gone through so many things that have made you mature faster than some adults do, you know, and you're just like trying to explain what's happening to you so you can get help and save your family and no one listens. Um, And so that was really hard. And my sister, my little sister really felt like I had kind of, separated our family that I had torn us apart and she didn't really understand because she's two years younger than me at that time well still now obviously but she was two years younger than me even in when I was in grade three so she just didn't understand what I was doing um and then there was a moment in time where like I when we were living with my grandparents and yeah my grandparents were pretty much like we can't afford both of you and so um I went into my first foster home at that time well my first secure foster home so like I stayed in this foster home for four years Um, before that I had been like in and out of like different respite situations, which is like pretty much if something happens and like, you need to be taken away for like a night or two social services will take you away to like a foster parent, but only for a couple of nights. doesn't really solve anything usually. And it just is a really uncomfortable situation for a child. Um, but I've done it a lot. And so I went into my first foster home and I was so excited. Um, but it was hard because my family, my like biological family isn't well off and my newer foster family had like a bigger house and like had some land outside of the city and my family kind of just got pissed off at me and essentially stopped talking to me and so I lost contact with them for a while as well and my sister and now I was just a part of this new family however this new family was amazing she was like well for the most part like I I learned so much being there um however my foster dad was also an alcoholic um, and this wasn't really known until I was there. And also as a child who comes from abuse, um, I didn't think it was weird. I didn't know it was bad. I didn't, you know, it all, it's normal to me. And so I would get phone calls in the morning while he was at work and he was like, hey, like I have chugged a couple bottles of wine and I left the empty bottles downstairs. Would you mind like putting them in the recycling before anyone sees them? And for me, like, I've never met my dad, my real biological dad. And so like to get this attention from my foster dad, and it was like the secret thing that him and I had, I was like, of of course I will do that for you. Like whatever you need, like, thank you for trusting me. You know what I mean? And so like, I lived there for a while and like I signed so much paperwork as a child. I can't even tell you how much. Um, But this one day I got some paperwork in front of me and like, I usually don't read anything. And I just had this inkling that I should read it. And they were essentially trying to adopt me um, without me really knowing. And wow. not only that, but I i was at this point in my life, I was so pissed off at not having control over my own body, <laughs> not being like in control. Like I'd gone to a different school every single year of my life. Like I had never been anywhere long enough to set any roots. And so by this point, I was like, I don't want to be adopted. Like I want to fucking be 18 so I can get the fuck out of here and, you know, start my life. Um, and so I said, no, as a child, and I think I was in grade seven or something. And I was like, I don't want to be adopted. Um, I don't like 
like, I know you guys are getting paid to keep me. Um, like that makes me feel uncomfortable, you know, like just like things like that. Um, and so eventually that kind of changed how they felt towards me when I said no to that. And slowly things just kind of got worse with my foster dad's drinking and, um, like there was never any abuse, like physically, like with my other stepdad, but it was like, it was just verbal and he would get really drunk and try and like talk really like intense spiritual shit with me. And like, it, it was just really intense and it, it was confusing for me because I had never had a dad. And then I had this version of a dad, but like, as a foster kid, you're only, the, the, the scary part about it is they only keep you when you're convenient. You know what I mean? Like if you're being good and you're not opinionated, you know, and you don't talk back and whatever, it's like, okay, then we'll keep you, you know? But it's like, when I start to like have my own opinions or like, like speak up for something that bothers me, then it's like, oh, well, like we could ship you off somewhere, you know, like not that they ever said anything like that, but like the energy that you get yeah. as a child, like you're like, you know, it, it just feels weird. Like you see uh, the other kids that are like, like getting hugged and kissed and like, you're just not. <laughs> um, but so my grandparents ended up like taking me back in for a little bit, but um, because of their kids and their addiction issues, um, they couldn't afford to keep my sister and I again. And so they essentially told us that we were going to a respite um, for a couple of weeks while they were like recuperated after something that had happened with their kids. Um, and I, we moved into this new foster home and this woman was different than the last in the sense that she would just have as many kids as possible and then not work and then use that money for herself. Um, and she lived in a nice house. She looked nice. She dressed nice. There was no way you could tell anyone that she wasn't doing a good job. You know what I mean? And who's going to listen to the foster kids? Like fucking no one. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Um, but so the thing that happened there was like, when you turn 18, the government doesn't pay your foster parents to keep you anymore. And so essentially on my 18th birthday, she was like, okay, you gotta go. And I was like, okay, sweet. Um, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. Um, but so pretty much I was taken away from my family in Alberta and transferred to another province, which is BC. And so technically the government of Alberta is my parent. Like they've taken me and my sister in and they're technically our parents. So when I turned 18, um, they had this rule back then where like the government of Alberta would pay for your schooling, any foster kids schooling. Um, but you had to live in Alberta and you had to go to an Alberta school. So like literally when I turned 18, I just like got a ride to Alberta with like the clothes that I had and the stuff that I had. And I just moved there um, to apply for this program so I could go to school. And I was so excited to start my freaking life. And I get there and the lady's like, oh, your foster mom should have filled out this paperwork for you months ago. You have to wait till next year. And I was oh like, what do you mean till next year? I was like, I don't have anywhere to go. I don't have anywhere to live. I don't know anyone here. Like I was counting on this money and on these programs to like set me up. And essentially I cried in this building, um, called social services, had to like fight to find myself an advocate to get someone to help me start my freaking life because it was like no one has taught me how to use a like a bank like no one has taught me how to apply for university no one has taught like no one in my school my family has graduated like I was the first person you know right. so it was like I was so excited I'm like out in the world and now I'm like oh I don't know anything <laughs> you know yeah. and I have no friends like I've moved so much I don't know what the frick is going on so pretty much what happened was when you live in BC you have to be the legal drinking age is 19 
but the legal drinking age in Alberta is only 18. And so when I moved to Alberta, I was suddenly legal to drink. And like when I was like when I was in high school and stuff, like I didn't care about sneaking into clubs. Like I didn't like anyone I went to high school with. Like I didn't give a fuck about partying with them. So like it just wasn't a thing. Like I, everyone always had fake IDs and like that just wasn't something I was into. Um, but when I moved to BC or when I moved to Alberta, I was like, I didn't know how to make friends and I didn't know how to freaking socialize or where to meet people. So I was just like, well, I'm gonna go to the club. <laughs> so I found this one club that I liked. And I would just like dress up and I would go there and it became kind of like a regular. And then people started noticing me there. So then they offered me a job. <laughs> and then for 10 years, I worked in this, the bar and service industry. And so for those 10 years, I, that's how I made my friends. That's how I, you know, finally was able to afford my first hut, like my first place, you know, like that's how I was able to like finally be able to have the clothes I've always wanted. Like, like the bars were like my catalyst to what I thought the life I always wanted was like what I knew about making friends and stuff in school wasn't no one accepted me there like I couldn't dress the way I wanted to I couldn't you know talk about the things that I wanted and one of like the things that I really liked about partying and drinking was like after parties because like I would go there and I would drink and I would do like a crap ton of cocaine and then we would talk and like people would talk about everything that they never talk about, you know? And like, those are things that like, I always talk about, but everyone else is always too uncomfortable to talk about. So like, it became this really comfortable, almost therapy for me where like, anytime I had an idea or like, I wanted to like share something with my friends because my friends were always, always busy. And the only time you could be around them was after parties. And so it was like, I would meet them at these after parties. And like, I, I kind of became like, um, like I worked at a lot of like all of the bars and restaurants in Edmonton. And then I became friends with everyone who owned all of them and then started like opening up different venues. And then I kind of became this person where anytime they would book talent or like a celebrity or whoever would come down to play, um, it was my job to make sure they had drugs and party favors and had a fun place to go. So like I was always known as being this person who like if you wanted to know where the party was or you wanted to know where to get the best drugs, you came to me. Right. And I liked this because I thought these were my friends. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that, you know, I was the party friend, you know, I thought like I didn't have friends growing up and I didn't have family. And so these people, friendship with me for them or with them for me was family. And I, I was serious about those friendships. And then obviously at the beginning, like drinking was fun. We would like go houseboating. We would get freaking plastered, like just sleep with random people, do all this crazy shit that we all glamorize and we're all doing together. So it was totally fine. And we were wearing sparkles and it was all good. But the thing was, is like, I lived on my own. I would come home. I would be anxious as hell. I wouldn't be able to sleep. You know, I would have to sleep in my bathroom because there's no windows in there. I would, you know, it was just like awkward. No one saw that part. And then the thing was, is like, I would I was always that person where like I would come home at 2 a.m. and I would get into bed and then I would get a call from someone and I would as soon as I was pulling the covers in I would fucking pull them right back up and get up and go right. because I I couldn't bear the thought of missing out on something that I was invited to because I had spent so much time not being invited to anything and so this this fear of FOMO fueled my drinking and the thing with my drinking and whatnot is like, I, I wouldn't say that I had a problem with drinking or that I was an alcoholic because I never had alcohol in my house. Like I never drank 
at home alone. Not that that's what defines an alcoholic, but like for me, those things just, I I didn't have those things. Like I drank to socialize or I drank so I could do cocaine. And um, so for me, like I never, I, I wasn't ever thinking that I needed to challenge my drinking, but what I started to notice in myself is when I was drinking, I was putting myself in these really dangerous situations. And like, at first, these after parties were filled with my friends and like, it was great. But at some point my friends would want to go to bed and not like, I had no obligations. I have no fucking parents, you know, like I have no nothing. Like I make my money and I do what I want and no one tells me anything because no one fucking cares to ask me how I'm doing (laughs) realistically. Like, you know, I don't like, I'm not talking to any of my siblings at this point. Like I, I don't know. I'm just trying to make friends and start my life and forget about all of that. Like not even heal from that, just forget about it, you know? Right. And so, yeah, it got like, it went from obviously being fun and these being my friends to me realizing that like, I would stay up for three days, like following these after parties and like, they weren't fun after parties. Like they were after parties with people who really didn't care about what happened to me or anyone that was there. You know, they were, they were people who were also there to do drugs and not to do drugs that were, from a good source or for to expand your mindset, you know, like they were doing it also to escape. And like, then these became my friends and these became my situations. And I started noticing this and I just started to feel gross. Like I was like, these people, like I, the story of that I had convinced myself was happening. I was slowly starting to see it wasn't true. And it was like a hard realization where I had to be like, why don't my friends call me during the day? Like, why don't, why don't they ask me how I'm doing? Like I asked them, you know, and it was because I was the party friend. And like, I literally didn't even realize that until like a month ago where I was like, Oh shit. I was the party friend. Like I had party friends that I think back and I'm like, Oh my God, I can never be with those people because those are my party friends. And here I am being the fucking party friend, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. It was almost as if you was an extension of the club. Like they use you for rec- for, for thrills of recreation. Never had an idea that you're a human being that actually needed love and, you know, deserved to be treated like a real friend. So, you know, I used to have, um, when, when, I, when, when I'm deep in my addiction, I had this brownstone when I got out of college in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. So I'm mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, New York in this real swanky spot. Yeah. Got this whole big building to myself. I'm young, I'm 25. I got yeah. two floors, a duplex. I'm the party guy. And that was kind of like the whole narrative. And that's that that was the beginning and the end of mm-hmm. where my whole addiction journey really spiraled out of control because I started to realize extremely fast that a lot of people was using me. They was using me because I had this beautiful property. I was free spirited. I was Mm -hmm. a party guy. I had an addiction so people could take advantage of me, you know, and then eventually when I started losing control with myself, that's when my environment got out of control. It would be Mm -hmm. days where I wake up and it'll be like, who's these people sleeping in the crib? And why Mm -hmm. is this person still here? And like, yo, homie, you've been here for three weeks. Are you trying to live here? And then eventually just, I lost control and I lost uh, um, a a $1.5 million property, the career that came with it and Mm -hmm. my self-respect and my addiction spiral out of control. And I learned the hard way that people will use you as mm-hmm. much as they can and discard you. So discard you. So I'm sorry that happened to you. Um, so you, you're you on this. So you said you realized a month prior that you was the party friend, mm-hmm. right? So what was the catalyst? So what happened to get you from 
this party environment, the party scene, and being this person, this extension of the nightlife um, into where you are now? Well, so like a, a series of events happened. So um, like, I I never wanted to, my, my, my goal was never to be fully alcohol free. Like it wasn't my decision. Like I was like, I thought that I could get like a control of things. You know what I mean? Like I, I was right. never, and I'm, I'm the type of person where if I tell myself, no, it's just going to make me want to do it more. Okay, so I had yeah. to like, I had to outsmart myself. And I, I knew I didn't want to go to like AA or a program because I'd seen my foster dad go through it. I'd seen all my family members go through it. And I was just like, I don't think that, that that's the energy that is going to help me personally. And I, and I also don't always relate to all sober people. So I was like, I really need to figure out. And I don't think that those sober programs and those sober things would be able to help my friends. Cause the other thing too, is like, I started to notice habits and consistencies within my friends that I noticed and saw within my family growing up. And so I started to get worried because I was like, oh shit, like you guys aren't able to say no, like you're getting really defensive over drugs or like, you know, you're not following through with your goals and you're not, um, you're not being the person that you say you want to be when you're high on cocaine, you know? Like you're not doing the things that we talk about. And that was upsetting me. And I was like, I I knew that someone had to do something and it had to be completely different than how it had been done before in order to, in order to get into the scene and the service industry and the music scene that I wanted to approach with people who didn't even know that they needed to work on their sobriety yet. You know what I mean? I was like, I need to like inception the music scene and I don't know how, and I'm not even at this point, I'm like not even crazy involved in like tons of that stuff or even taken seriously in tons of that stuff um but I just knew that I needed to do something and so it was funny like I yeah like I like the idea of Sober Saturdays happened um because I was I was just going to really uncomfortable after parties and then not happy with myself but the decision to fully stop drinking after like trying to quit drinking and going and still working in the bars. And then like, I had to like quit working there because I couldn't say no. And like the, the people that would come and visit me at the bars were like my regulars. I had seen them for 10 years. I had served them for 10 years, you know, like the Oilers would come in and they would pay me to drink with them. You know, like they'd be like, I'd be like, sorry guys, I'm not drinking. And they'd be like, here's $80 and we'll pay for as many shots as you want. And it's like, well, okay. (laughs) You know, or like my drug dealer friends would come in and they, that was just known. You just give me a bag of cocaine when you come in and I say, thank you. And I, pass on the word to all my friends, you know, like that. And so it got to a point where like, they wouldn't listen when I was saying no. And I I wasn't capable, I realized of saying no more than three times. So I could say no three times, but when people realized that they would just keep asking, you know, cause like I was so fun when I was fucked up, you know, I would take my clothes off. I would like, you know, let people into my energy and that's who they wanted to be around. Um, But so one night uh, specifically when I had been, I had been working on my drinking pretty well. I had, I ended up going out to, it was really funny. Like, so at this venue in Edmonton, this, uh, I think like Shania Twain or something had come, but her, her entourage had come into the coffee shop that I was now working at. Um, and I had like ch- chatted with them and they had asked me to meet them at this bar down the road. And so I was excited about it. I was like, this is cool. Um, ironically enough there was like this cute guy there at the time and so I was drinking there was three of them so I was drinking with these two girls that were with him and then I offered him a shot and he was like oh I actually don't drink and I was like what like I was like I usually don't drink and now I'm drinking right now and I was like but that's so dope that you don't drink like I wish I wasn't drinking right now 
anyways, they end up leaving. I meet up with some of these like after party friends that I had, you know, been partying with for the last 10 years. They weren't my fucking friends. Like we never talked unless it was like, Hey, you're at the bar. You want a shot? Now you want to come do some drugs and go to this party. And it was like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I want to do all that stuff. Um, but so anyways, this guy date raped me and it was, I knew it happened. And, um, pretty much like he gave me, he had been drinking this drink and he, we were going to go to another location and he told me to finish his drink. And I, looked at him, but I partied with this guy a lot of times before. And so I did it. And as soon as, as soon as I did it, I looked at him and I was like, that tasted really salty. And I had been date raped before. And I remember the taste and I walked out of the room to go to my shoes because we were going to leave as soon as we'd done that shot. And I don't remember the next 12 hours. Oh my God. And the things that happened to me during that or that I am aware of are really intense and it really affected my life. And the hardest part about it was that afterwards, no one believed me because I was the party chick and I knew everyone and I knew this person. And the worst thing that happened was like this guy after I had been date raped. I was in the back of his car or whatever. And I had like peed my skirt in his car and he got mad at me. And I don't remember any of this, but he, uh, he dropped me off at another guy's house because he didn't want to deal with me. And he had told this guy some sort of story about how he was helping me because I had gotten too fucked up. And so I had like woken up after hours of this and I didn't know where I was, but I was, or I didn't know how I had gotten there, but I was at a place where I used to party a lot. And so like, I thought I was just, I thought I had just come here and partied and whatever. And so I woke up and there was other people there and they're like, Hey, how are you? Like, do you want some cocaine or something? And I was so out of it. So I just wanted to do some, so I could like straighten up. And then when I did, we started like, he was like, yeah, like what, like what happened to you? Like he dropped you off. Like I, you had like soiled yourself essentially. And like, we had to, like, I changed you. He was like, uh, like essentially like what happened? And I couldn't remember anything. And like, as a lot of other things happened within that 24 hours. And then obviously I, I, I had to deal with all of that. And I had missed a day at work and I had to tell my boss what happened. And the hard part about it was just like, I had reached out to my friends for support and they didn't believe me. And it, the bars that I worked at didn't believe me. The people that I'd worked with didn't believe me. And they just thought that I was being irresponsible. And so I locked myself in my apartment for five months, essentially with my dog. And I just was too, I lived in a building with lots of my friends and I was so embarrassed and ashamed that like, I could hardly let my dog outside to go to the bathroom. Like I would, I was just like fucking shit on my floor. Like I'm too scared to go out there because I'm so embarrassed that if I see someone, they're going to look at me a certain way and it's going to put me into a panic. And so I felt like I couldn't be in this place that I had been in for 10 years. And I didn't, all these people who I thought were my friends, they just like clearly were not. And so within that sobriety, I came into like all these really intense realizations. And um, I realized that like one, I still wanted to party because I, I that's where I, I love creating events. I love socializing. Like I, I truly love doing those things. I love music, you know, I love dancing. Those things are therapeutic to me. I didn't want that to be taken away. Um, 
And when I had tried to go back to the bar, it didn't feel the same and I didn't understand why. Um, but so essentially like I started planning alcohol-free events. And so the reasoning behind this was like, I talked to some of my, I talked to, I had thought about like my mom and my uncles and stuff. And like, they had gone to rehab, like my uncle's gone to rehab, like I don't even know, like 15 times and he's relapsed every single time. And I'm always thinking like, why the, why the frick is that happening? Like a program that's supposed to help you and you can go to so many of them. Like what, what is happening when you get out that's making all that progress go away? Yeah. And what after hearing so many stories and whatnot, like what I realized is like, it's the integration back into society. Like there's so like the stigma around sobriety was so weird that like all, like all of the bars and restaurants I worked at didn't have any alcohol-free products. So like these, my, my family would go to meet their friends at places where they would hang out because they're just trying to be normal, you know, like everyone who gets sober is always trying to be just a normal person at first, you know, and they would go there and they would have no, like, someone would offer them a drink. You know what I mean? And then someone, the server would come back and offer them another drink, you know, and there's no alternatives or you can drink orange, orange juice and grenadine, you know, and everyone's going to be like, why aren't you drinking? Why aren't you drinking? You know, and it just gets like, you're in the same association, you're in the same environment, you're in the same situations and there's no support for sobriety. And so I just took it upon myself. I was like, I am going to find high-end alcohol-free products and I'm going to integrate them into all of these establishments so that when I go out, I don't have to be like, hey, can you make me a fake drink? And then if anyone asks me what I'm drinking, you know, I have to freaking come up with some sort of situation. It's like, and then the other thing too is like, who the fuck would want an alcohol-free gin, you know, when you're a partier? Like, why, why is that important? So I had to like create reason for it. And like, that's why I created Sober Saturdays. It was like, I hold these wicked events that are sober and alcohol-free. I promote the products there. I get people hooked on them. You know, I get people hooked on the experience. Then I integrate those products into bars and restaurants so that people can go there and be normal and not feel triggered or, you know, and that like the stigma around sobriety is changing because it, 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 it the conversation has changed so much since even I, I became sober curious in 2018, you know, like I can now go out somewhere. And if I say I'm not drinking, people are like, oh, okay, what can I get you? But like when I first started, people were like, oh, like, are you pregnant? Like, are you on medication? Like, do you have a problem? And it's like, no to being pregnant, yes to medication. I don't know if I have a problem. Why are you asking me this on the middle of the dance floor? You know? <laughs> right, right. And, and, and I, I'm really proud of the steps that you took and the steps that you're taking. I mean, I definitely want to go back. I'm sorry about yeah, the, okay. uh, you know, the date rape situation. That yeah. sounds so horrific. And Mm -hmm. I, I thank you for your courage to talk about that because so many women, you know, are dealing with these type of situations and they keep it to themselves. And we know that unprocessed emotions are just not even just speaking about it could be so therapeutic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you had a raw deal, you know, you grew up with this terrible stepfather, you was bounced around from house to house you know, and from 18 to 28, you live, you know, you pretty much, you went from being a ward of Alberta to a ward of the club scene, right, mm -hmm. so to say, and kind of was raised and matured through that. And out of all of that, you produce something beautiful, you're producing something beautiful to make someone else's experience down the line a little bit more manageable. So you're super courageous for that. And I don't want to just pause over all of this because, this is where the value is, your strength, your resiliency and your courage. 
Um, and, I, and I get pissed when I hear this. You know, I want to beat yeah. someone up. I really want to physically beat someone up, and I can't. And the only way we could really get through this is by sharing the story, pushing through, um, and 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 keep it and just bringing it to the fore. So thank you so much for that. And even for me, like my thing when I first got sober was the old dudes. Like I, I would drink old dudes, non-alcoholic beer, because one, I did like the taste of beer, but two, it still made me feel a little comfortable assimilating back into society. Like if I went out, I figured if I asked for non-alcoholic beer, it would be kind of like a cool social lubricant. So I didn't have to explain things too much. Um, And we shouldn't have to explain things like sobriety should just be that. Like, I don't want to drink. Right. And excuse me. And the funny thing is, is that recently I don't even need that anymore. Like I just go out and just I just drink coffee. Like, I don't like, yeah. oh, they be you know, we have non-alcohol beer. I'm like, I don't want non-alcohol beer. Yeah. Carbs and stuff, and it's going to spike my blood sugar. I'm good. Okay. Like, I do you have coffee? And I started making the experience kind of like a beautiful thing. When I go out, I'm like, you know, let me see your drink menu. You know, let me get a Perrier with a coffee. Yeah. Tell me about your coffee, what type of milks you have. Ma- and then I'll make it about the food. But that comes yeah. a lot with experience, right? So we're kind of concerned with the person like your uncle who's just coming out of rehab or AA or whatever it is, assimilating back into society and then getting shell-shocked, right? That's what kind of happens. You get shell-shocked with the social pressure and we don't necessarily have the skills. So you started Sober Saturdays and now I notice you have a sober drink called Daydream, right? Mm -hmm. So Daydream, I was really excited. So the way that my company was before COVID is completely different than what my company is now because obviously COVID changed a bunch of stuff. So at the beginning of COVID, I had two business partners, um, an accountant and a graphic designer. And we, um, we, I had about 17 products on my roster. Um, So my big thing was there's only, there's more now, but maybe five or less alcohol free products in Canada. So there, like, there's a million in the UK. There's tons in the US, but they just like, it, like over the last two years, more have sprung up. But like, there's just not a lot here. So my big thing is like, I wanted to import products that were not here yet. So like, I would order like Rose Botanicals from Milan, Italy, and I would order 24 bottles, and there would only be 24 bottles in Canada, and you could only get them from me. So the other thing too is like, like I'm a big festival goer. Like my partner's a DJ. Uh, he DJs at festivals in Canada, and he's also sober, but. Once, uh, once I kind of stopped going to the clubs as much and I started like getting more involved in like the festival scene and whatnot, because um, what I noticed was like a lot of DJs and whatnot weren't getting booked because they weren't going to these after parties. And it was like the, the opportunities weren't the same for the same people because they weren't drinking. And I, I really, I don't know. I just, I saw a lot of my DJ friends and my performer friends and I just, wanted them to be able to do it for a long time um and I I hated the fact that like like that starving artist perspective you know where like you need to be broke and like drunk or on drugs or something in order to create art or to like you know like be successful and it's like no like you can be so creative without being under the influence like I swear I swear I swear but we have all been like convinced that like in order to be creative you have to like you know have these like experiences or whatever but so I don't really know where I was going with that, but my first, within my first year of business, I was asked to be a part of the harm reduction panel for a base, base coast, which is a music festival here in Canada. And like, to me, that was like the biggest honor because I love this festival. It was like a huge experience for me. And 
the thing too is like I want to like my friends aren't like I don't know like my friends aren't very basic like they're all they're all dressed very colorfully they all are musicians or artists or creatives and they weren't necessarily thinking about sobriety and so I I knew if I wanted to introduce it to them it had to be like fucking cool you know what I mean like I was like what would I like like if someone was like if I didn't decide I wanted to be sober and someone was like trying to like subtly convince me what would that need to look like and like I looked at all the sober profiles and I was like like I get it I was like but I'm just not convinced you know like it doesn't seem fun enough it doesn't seem exciting enough uh it, the information that I need just isn't there you know what I mean like I like I personally I use plant medicines like cannabis and things like that for my anxiety and it's helped so much because I've been able to get off my antidepressants and my anti-anxiety meds and like that's just something that works for me but I also know reaching out to lots of other sober profiles I just was not getting the support I needed or even being accepted like uh, the energy was different the way that I dressed just like people were just really like didn't really get it but like in my friend group obviously everyone gets me um and like these are the types of people that I want to challenge anyway so it's like I, it's great to have all these sober profiles online and to have all these people online that are like actively looking for sobriety, but like, I'm trying to get my friends who don't even really know it yet. You know what I mean? Like they Absolutely. don't know that they're binge drinking and going to festivals and going on these benders. Cause my friends go on benders, you know what I mean? And like, I need to show them that you can go to a festival and you can not drink and you can have a 10 out of 10 time. And like, I also need to believe that, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Absolutely. I have to create that. Like that has to, I have to believe that right and so yeah that was kind of like my thing it was like i i needed to convince myself that sobriety was freaking cool and along the way of like trying to convince myself i actually found that <laughs> yeah and yo that's crazy you know that's deep and first when i found your profile i definitely was so like i think i think everything about you is cool you have one of the most beautiful eclectic artful and colorful websites and the Thank movement you. and how you put everything together and mm -hmm. I tell you this much, I'm definitely was a different person in my sobriety. Like I mm -hmm. literally, and that, it doesn't bother me. What I would say is this, I had to be comfortable with accepting who I am now. I grew mm -hmm. up, I'm not, I'm not in my twenties anymore. So mm -hmm. a lot of people look for the 20 year old pop that was swinging from the chandelier, that's the rapper, mm -hmm. that's the party guy and all of this stuff and real estate with the girls and and I'm just like super chill now. Like I go out and I'm like, yo, where's the Dunkin' Donuts, man? And they're like, yo, this guy. But the thing is, I, I really had to embrace that. And I, I had no example of how to make sobriety cool. But I just said I had to trust myself. So that's why I said sober is dope because in our sobriety, we can still be dope. Like we can still be oh, yeah. interesting. Partying can still be fun. And sober creativity. I did a podcast with my friend Martin John Garcia from mm -hmm, uh, yeah. Recover Yourself. And we talked about the importance of creativity and breaking yeah. the myth of creativity. Getting yeah. permission from your drug of choice to be exciting or creative today. Mm -hmm. Having to check in with your drug to see if you're going to be able to write or be good. Totally. That whole false paradigm of the artist who has to be strung out and creative and deep and broke. That's bullshit. And my thing was, I'm super creative now. And like you, you're super productive. You're doing yeah. all of this stuff. And you think, I think you had 100 people in your corporation and it's you, right? 
it's just you and, and so that's a testament and um and that hey we're breaking the myths one day at a time so you brought your friends and now how did your friends respond did it was the convert what's the conversion like were you able to convert at least one person over to the recovery uh the way you showed them it being cool and stuff so like in alberta where right. i first was this is like a more conservative province and okay. so like i'm telling you my first event hit Every, I was on the front page of the paper. I hit every, I wrote for universities across Canada. People were like, one Canadian woman holds a party without alcohol. How will she do it? Like people were bewildered. And like wow. all my friends who held events started sending me messages being like, there's no way this is going to work. We've been holding events for years. Like you can't, people aren't going to pay tickets for an alcohol free event. Like I was like, okay, first of all, it's because your guys' events, you're counting on people to be drunk. So you just need a dark venue. Everyone's going to get fucked up. You don't have to worry about it. When sober people come to an event, everyone's attentive. Everyone, you know, so like you need to create experiences for them. So it was like, I was like, I'm not doing what you're doing. You know, I'm not just finding like some venue, some bar that you play at every fucking weekend for the last 10 years, you know, to go to the same place at the same music at the same DJ. Like I'm creating weird experiences so that adults can feel silly while being sober so that we can get over the awkwardness. So like, I would hold like really funny parties, like midnight tea parties for adults with magicians at it. And I, I like, like funny shit. And like those, like that event sold out, which was really funny, but pretty much like my friends weren't, they were also like partying, right? Like, so they were mad at me because the fact that I looked at my drinking and my, uh, like my, my addictions and how my habits, and I was saying I had a problem and they were all doing it just as much or even more as me because they didn't, you know, by that point I wasn't getting invited to everything. That meant that they must have some sort of issues as well, right? And so I stopped getting invited to things. Um, I, yeah, I, I pretty much, all the support that I thought I was gonna get from my friends, I didn't. Those aren't the people who came to my events. Those aren't the people who were interested in the things I was doing. And that really hurt my feelings, obviously, because I am such a support, like I, if you're my friend, like I will fucking go to every single one of your events. Like I will promote the shit out of it. Like I, I, I'm serious about friendship. You know what I mean? Like it's important to me. I don't have my family. Like I'm going to be your fucking friend. Right. <laughs> um, and so when that wasn't reciprocated, I was confused because their words weren't matching their actions. And I had to have a lot of internal moments where I was like, okay, maybe these weren't my friends. That really hurts. That's really upsetting. It doesn't mean I can't make new friends. I also need to decide if I'm going to keep staying here and justifying what I'm doing to these people, or am I going to go and find my people, you know? And so that's when like, I met my new partner who is also sober now and we moved to BC, which is just like a much more health conscious, colorful, summery place. And since coming here, it's been so different. And all of the artists that like we work with or that we've partied with in the past, especially over COVID have all started challenging their drinking. And it's been the most rewarding and also just relieving thing to see that it's like actually starting to wear off because I really had to come to terms with the fact that just because I'm a sober profile and I am promoting something healthy and well, and I genuinely know it's gonna help people, it doesn't mean it's what they wanna hear. And it doesn't mean that they're gonna respond well. So like my family fucking hates that I'm sober because none of them are sober and they like not being sober. And now they feel uncomfortable around me. And so it's like, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just, yeah. 
It's a good, well, this is the good thing though. Believe mm. it or not, the people who's throwing the shade, the people who's a little uncomfortable, maybe a little apprehensive to be around you, the deep down your strength and your transformation is going to be something that's going to help them in the future. Cause sometimes we think they're not paying attention. I have people, I have a friend who told me straight up, you're not a real man, you weak, real men drink and all of that. And I, I this was early in my recovery. I was so mad just cause I couldn't get to him yeah. over the phone. And I started crying. I started crying. I was pissed, but, and I was so early. It was just like my third month in recovery. And I'm like, yeah. why, why are you giving me this hard time? Yeah. But I know that those are the same people who they, they recognize it. My sister told me one time, she said, you yeah. know what, pop, you may not realize that people are watching you. You may think people are judging you, but people mm-hmm. people are paying attention and you're helping people. And mm-hmm. I have people that come to me now and say, yo, you know what, man, that sober is dope thing is strong. I was thinking yeah. about it. Can you help me? Right. So believe it or not, when your family's ready and they're going to get to a point, God willing, we all get to a yeah. point where we need to shift. You're mm-hmm. going to be there. Right. Um, and so are your friends. So don't think it's falling on deaf ears because you're changing the narrative. And that's what's important. Because trust me, my friends is like, I know, sober is dope. And we get it. We get the point. We're still going out tonight. And that's why I always say we have a live and let live approach to sobriety, because I want people to be able to have fun. But if you can't do it responsibly, then you need to reevaluate why you're drinking. If you're using it to cope, if there's a coping mechanism, it's a negative coping mechanism for something that you're not treating. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Have you, did you ever go to therapy for anything? Did you ever have to deal with, how did you deal with a lot of the trauma from your past? And especially now being quote unquote in sobriety. Mm-hmm. So it's a constant, it's a constant thing to work on. Like I have been working on myself since I was little. So pretty much like when I was little, I, I noticed the state that my family was in. And I knew that the only way I was going to get any better is if I educated myself. So like at a very young age, I became super obsessed with self-help books and I would just read everything. Um, and about like manifesting and energy and all that jazz too. Um, and so um, yeah, like I went to yoga teacher trainings. I went to Nicaragua for a few months. I've done a bunch of different trainings to work on my body and my, um, because like after I quit drinking, I realized I had fibromyalgia and I was drinking to mask my pain. So that was something I had to work okay. through. Okay. Okay. That's um, important. Yeah. But then, I, yeah. So I just like, what did I just say? I forget. That you, was, you went to Nicaragua, you were oh, doing yeah. different things so to mask the pain. Yeah, and so then I also, I went to school for acupuncture and Chinese medicine. Oh, so, wow, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I was like, just like on this, like, essentially, like, I was on this mission to heal my family. I was like, I'm going to educate myself so that I can help them because no, like, these programs aren't helping them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but the funny thing was, is like, I learned all of this stuff so I could help my family. And, but my family's like, nah, like, we don't want to be helped. Like, we're good. You know what I mean? And so it was really hard because yeah, for a long time, I tried to help them and it was bad for me. And that also, um, that also was contributed to my drinking. Um, and so, yeah, I had to create boundaries within my family too, within my sobriety that has really helped. Like I haven't talked to my mom in two years, which is very hard. And she's very, very intense still. Like I have her blocked on lots of different things. And she, um, she still will try and call me like 16 times a day and she's just not well, so it makes me feel really horrible. Like she'll go from being like, hi, how are you? To be like, you're a fucking bitch. And you're just like, what just happened? 
Um, and so like having to grow, having to grow strong enough to have boundaries and to not let anyone make you stray from them because people will be like, Oh, like your mom's not well, you know what I mean? Like you need to like be there for her or like, you know what? And and like, no one knows your situations, you know, like no one knows the shit that you go through with your addicted family and people can try and tell you how to go about it. But like, you have to put yourself first. And like, the more I tried to help them, the worse I got. And so like, the reason why I'm in such a good place right now was because I, I listened to the fact that they weren't ready to heal. And instead I took everything I learned and what I was doing and I found people who were ready to heal. And so now I'm almost helping them more because they get to see all of this people that I've helped and like how I've helped myself. And eventually they'll just have to catch on, you know? Right. And look, protecting your personal space, having healthy boundaries, that is so essential. I tell everyone, look, if you're in recovery, you can't worry. Look, I will totally cut someone off now. And it took a long time because again, I'm like you, I was the center of attention. I'm the party guy. I'm the one that you would go to. People will lean on me. They'll put all their baggage on me and then leave. And I'll have to sit there and process it all. And now I'm like, look, if you're negative, I'm done. And with that friend I was telling you about, he had three times. The third time when he told me I wasn't a man and I started getting angry, I cut him off. That was successfully seven years ago and I never looked back. I love him. I prayed for him. I asked about him, but I'm not going to sit there and let you dump your toxic energy on me, especially while I'm in recovery, right? We're healing. We're healing. And you're healing not just from um the party scene and stuff like that you're healing from your childhood from the trauma and all of these things and i really want you katie make sure you just always protect yourself put your you know it's okay to say no it's okay to be selfish if you have to it's okay to sleep all day it's okay to do whatever you need to do to heal and it's never too late to really go get therapy or talk about the things that help that hurt you in the past and stuff because you deserve that you know yeah, like I see a therapist now and like we just got my partner on a therapist and he hasn't seen a therapist like since he was little. So I'm really excited about That's that. That's exciting. Tell us about, yeah. do you, do you, I think therapy is so important mm-hmm. and people always try to under, to play it out. Yeah. I, uh, it's so real. I love therapy. Yeah. Me too. I always joke around. I'm like, everyone interesting has a therapist or 10, you know? <laughs> that's right. And and that's why when you said it was certain people that come out like you with, with your uncle, when they come out and then they hit society and get shell shocked, mm-hmm. it's because they don't have the right things to fall back exactly, on. Yeah. When you, I tell people, you come out of rehab or you come out some short-term detox mm-hmm. or you go to a couple of AA meetings and you think you're healed, mm-hmm. just know when you come out, it's okay to go and get of additional help to totally. go seek therapy. I, I like, like recommend that. it 100%. And like, it's funny because there's like those memes where it's like people go to therapy to deal with their friends and family who don't go to therapy, you know? Right, 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 and right. It's so true. But and, yeah, like I, I love my therapist. Like I, yeah, I've, it's interesting though because like growing up in foster care, we had court orders to go to therapists. So like we were forced oh to go to therapists and we weren't allowed to pick them. Okay. And honestly, like, when I was little, I I just got good at telling them what they wanted to hear so I could get the fuck out of there because I could tell that they were asking me, like they were all worked for social services. So they would all ask certain things to almost like coax you into a certain way of believing because obviously they know that you come from a traumatic upbringing. And so they think they need to teach you a different way of thinking. But like, 
I was such an independent person at a young age and I was like, no, 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 like no one's convincing me of anything here. Like I just need to get out in the real world and I'll figure it out. And right, so like, right. I would just like say like these things so I would get out of the situation. And then, so when I became an adult, I was kind of like grumpy at therapists for a while because I was like, I had this really weird taste in my mouth about them. And I was like, no, they're not legit. You know what I mean? They're not actually trying to help you. They're trying to like coax you into a different way of thinking that they were programmed by whatever program they went to. Right, they were, like right. some weird shit. But once I was able to pick my own therapist and pick someone younger and someone who like understood me and like lived in my city, you know, or like, it was like, it was way different. And it's completely different when you can pick someone that you enjoy and that like you want to talk to and you can, you know, swear around or like, you know, (laughs) be yourself. You could just totally be yourself. Totally. And like, I noticed I needed therapy recently, like after moving here, because we've been here since January and I haven't had a therapist because I started blabbing all my shit to everyone that was around you know like I was like oh you're my new friend do you want to hear about my childhood trauma and it was like right. oh no one wants to hear about that like not right now anyways you know it's like yeah 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 so, uh, like taking that responsibility and being like okay therapist time yeah definitely but that, uh, going back to the childhood trauma that's something that is so deep and I'm glad you're you're working at it you're working mm. at it and you're shining so how are you doing now how long have you been really actively dealing with sobriety yeah, so I would say, um, and so in 2018 is when I first started like my sober curious journey. And so okay. I quit drinking for like five months. Um, and then I started, I tried to go on a date <laughs> without yeah. drinking. So the first, the first guy I went on a date with, it was totally fine. Or like, I didn't drink, he did drink. And it was like awkward for him. He like didn't know how to be around me. So then I was like, then I felt weird. And I had like six months of sobriety under my belt. So the next day I went on, I was like, well, maybe I can have one or two, you know? And that went into three months of binge drinking with this dude. And then obviously I had to be like, whoa, what the fuck am I doing? Like, you know? And so um, when that happened, like I noticed my habits were getting worse again. And so I started, like at first, like I started just like, I started just challenging myself because like I'm not the type of person who can just stop something right away. Or like, I, I wanted to, I don't know. I wanted like, for me, even now, I like to think of anytime someone asks me if I have a drink, I still think of it as a choice. Like I find empowerment by saying no. So like, I don't say I can't drink or like I'm sober. So I don't drink. I'm like, no, I don't want that. You know what I mean? For me, that's like empowering to me. It is. Yeah. And so like when I find people who are like, feel like they have no power over alcohol, like I, I feel bad for them because I'm just like, the only reason that I can stay sober is because like, I genuinely want to be, you know what I mean? Like I, I've convinced myself, like I wasn't told to be sober. I, I didn't, wasn't given all these rules on how I needed to be sober. It was like, I chose. And anytime someone asks me, I, I say no. And that it, like fills me up even more. You know what I mean? I Sorry. love that. I love, that's a whole new way of thinking. That's a whole mm-hmm. new way of thinking is because we're trained to say we're powerless. Well, we say we're powerless over the addiction, mm-hmm. but you do have power over the alcohol. You can't say you go, you're, it's empowering to say, no, I don't want that. It's yeah. a, it's a different command and it's giving you some power and giving yeah. you control of the narrative. I like that for framing it that way. It's a different yeah. way to frame it. Um, that's, that's so awesome. That's so awesome. So you're doing all of these things. Mm-hmm. and you're thriving and how how did you now i was interested to ask you this how did you create daydream starting a beverage company how can for the art for the sober entrepreneurs that are uh, the entrepreneurs out there what advice like if i wanted to start a beverage company what do i do how do one go about doing that 
Okay, so first of all, Daydream is a, a product that I use with another Canadian. Okay. So essentially what happened was before COVID, I had a list of 17 different products that I was importing into Canada, okay. which was awesome because I was the only one doing that. However, as one small person, importing these products is really freaking expensive. Like you need to do it on ship or by plane. And since it's not alcohol, it freezes. And so you need to have heated ways of traveling it into Canada. And I learned this the hard way by obviously using a not heated truck one time and a bunch of shit blew up. Oh, um, no. which sucked because, uh, I don't have anyone to give me more money for something. And so I lost all of that. Um, but so pretty much like I was, uh, what I wanted to do is I wanted to run an alcohol free liquor store, essentially. Like I wanted, cause like, it's great that like alcohol free products are in liquor stores, but if you're an alcoholic, you don't want to go into a freaking liquor store to get your alcohol free liquor. You know what I mean? Wow. Like you need a space to go that's for you. That's your own experience. That's not triggering you or like putting you in an environment where you could slip up, you know? Yeah. So essentially I wanted to open like an alcohol free liquor store. My idea caught fire right away. I found all of these like incredible products within my first year. I was doing these big festivals. I recently, like just before COVID happened, I found an investor. Uh, we built this new website. We had all of these things happening. Um, we were going to obviously before COVID and all this like Amazon shit happened. We were going to send our products to Amazon. Um, so essentially like if you ordered off my website, they would fulfill the product the orders. And then we would just, I would just send more product to Amazon. And so like, essentially, cause what was happening was I was ordering product to my house and then my house became a liquor store <laughs> or an alcohol free liquor store. You know what I mean? And then my problem that I was having was like, well, how the frick now that I've got this all here, now I need to like separate it out of this packaging, put it in new packaging, and then somehow create affordable shipping with this heavy weighted stuff. So it was like all of these, <coughs> excuse me, all of these like constant problems are coming up. But so anyways, I found an investor, which I was so excited about because I had someone else who was going to invest before and he bailed last minute and totally fucked me over. Different story. <laughs> um, but so this guy invested some money and I was really excited. We had finally had all the products, like everything was getting worked out. And then COVID hit. And when COVID hit, uh, he, I don't even know how to explain this. He decided he didn't want to be a part of things anymore because it was too sketchy for him, which is fine. But instead of like going through the contract or like working with the company on how to like pay him back on this investment, he just drained the company bank accounts, which is totally illegal. And so at the beginning, yeah. So at the beginning of COVID, I went from like having this amazing team, all this pro work I've done, like finally trusting someone to share my company with, you know what I mean? I just filed a shareholders agreement. Like we were like a federal company incorporated. Like I was my, it was happening, you know, like I moved right. to the city. I wanted it to happen. The people he wanted the drinks, all the establishments were ready. I just had to start. And then, yeah, he stole all the money and it was like, okay, what do I do now? So like, obviously I called the lawyers, try and work through the shareholders agreement. Like over the last few months, it's been this big legal battle, um, that we're, I'm finally getting to the bottom to now. So essentially like what had happened is like when COVID hit, uh, we couldn't import things into Canada anymore because no one was working and no one could ship that stuff. And, you know, where was it going to go? Amazon wasn't accepting new products anymore because they were short staff. And so we were like, okay, well, maybe we could find a Canadian product that we could have, you know, something that's different than anything else. Um, and at this point in my sober journey too, I had kind of realized like, uh, like I don't really drink alcohol-free products anymore. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like you were saying, it was like, I went from being like, okay, like, yeah, I need, I need a fake gin and tonic because like, I, I need that right now. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. I've gotten, I've gotten through that. I'm like, I don't, I don't even care about that anymore. Really. Like personally, I don't even really care about that anymore. Like I used to have like a bar cart in my house that was like filled with products and like, 
but like I wasn't the type of drinker who would come home and make myself a cocktail that had 10 ingredients in it you know right, like I didn't right. do that like I took shots because I didn't want to get fat you know what I mean like I yes. chugged things like that's what I did I would take ice out of cups and just fucking pound it like that's how I drank yeah, <laughs> um and so I had this realization that I was like doing all this work for all this product and I I wasn't even passionate about it anymore right. and so I had to like sit down and be like okay the company that I had built for the last year and a half is kind of dying or changing and I'm like who am I in my sobriety now and like what do I want to do moving forward and so I started looking online for different products in Canada um, that I could source and I ended up stumbling across this product which is Daydream so Daydream is just such a cool story and product and that's why I love it so much but obviously the branding is like incredibly beautiful and cute and I don't know I love it I love it I love it it's so good but so like as a as a student of Chinese medicine and like acupuncture like obviously like I take a lot of like herbs and tinctures and like I use a lot of essential oils and I do all this stuff and so when I found this product it's really cool because it's got ingredients like ginseng moringa shishandra like all of these things that make you feel good and like my idea was like oh my god can you imagine going to a bar and feeling better than when you got there like you know, like how would that right. work? So, That's awesome. So I like reached out to this guy. So I do business a little bit differently than other people, I think. And I've learned this um, because like, for me, I wanted to be friends with the, the people that own these products and created them. Like I wanted to, I wanted to know them. Like I wanted to know their story. I wanted to see how they built it. And so like, I don't know if you know products like Kalino or Seedlip or like l- products like that. But like, I talked to Ellie who, see, Kalino is like a, a tropical gin from made in Colombia. Um, and it's made out of like Inca berries and like really, really delicious things. Um, but I thought I saw, I found her Instagram when she had like 10 followers and I was like, Whoa, what are you doing? Like, tell me, how can I support you? Like, and I started getting like, yeah, people essentially to like send me bottles and I would do these live interviews of like what they were making or wow. yeah, and like whatever. And so I got like, I became friends with these people. So like anyone that I do business with, it's really awesome because I can text them directly and just be like, Hey, what's up? Like, would you mind if I, could you send me these graphics or like, whatever, like, I don't have to go through anyone, like everyone that I've worked with, they're my friends. Right. <laughs> um, and like, I don't write my business emails professionally or anything because I don't want to run business like that. Like, I don't want to be getting those emails. Like I want someone to be like, Hey Katie, like, blah, 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 blah. And I'll be like, yeah, of course. Like, don't yeah. worry about me, you know, everything structurally <laughs> there because that's not important to business for me, like being creative and doing whatever else. Like, that's what we should focus on. Like, I don't give a fuck if you didn't sign that properly. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I, let's not focus on the egotistical side of business, you know? Um, yeah. 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 And so when I found Daydream, I was stoked. So it's like this guy named Alex, he's from Toronto. So essentially he is going to university and they decided as like a school that they were going to create a product and all of the students were going to get involved. So they wanted a health conscious product that used hemp adaptogens in it. So essentially like in the cannabis product, there's like the psychoactive part of it. There's like the CBD part of it, which is right. not psychoactive. Then there's also like hemp adaptogens, which are just like, they're just good for you, but they're not, they're not going to give you any effects like either of those parts of the plant. It's right. like completely, it's just completely different. But so essentially um, this guy flew down to Vancouver. He met up with me and I met up with his friend and he told me like the whole process. So like the school made the website, like all the students were together to create this product. And he was just in Toronto and I was like, dude, like I could fucking sell this product. Like this product is my jam. Like I can be a rep for this product. Like it matches my stuff. Like my friends will love it. You know what I mean? And it's, it's for me, like I really, when I was thinking about alcohol free products, like I was like, why do people like alcohol? You know, like why the fuck do people like alcohol? And like, I thought about women and wine 
And it was like, women love talking about wine. You know what I mean? You get a nice bottle. It's like, you talk about where it was bottled, like what's in it. There's a special way to drink it. And so I realized that if I wanted to get people involved in alcohol-free products, I had to get them obsessed with them. And so I had to find ingredients that were really interesting or that would give you certain feelings. And I had to find really interesting ways that they were brewed so that like, people would like, when they had them with their friends, they could be like, oh, look at this thing I have. And there's only, like, I'm the only vendor in Vancouver who has these products, right? So when people have them, they're like, they had to get them from me. And mm. like, and so it's like, oh, you must know Katie. Or like, you know, it's like, it becomes this exclusive thing. Nice. And so what happened was we ordered, we couldn't order all this product to Amazon. And so we ordered all this product to my house. Um, and then we ordered these boxes. We needed boxes to put the product in, in order to ship them out. We were gonna do subscription boxes. And so I ordered, I don't know if you can see them, but there's a, a, a pile of 575 bo flattened boxes wow, there. Wow, yeah. And then like a shit ton of boxes of product over there. But so essentially we ordered all this product to my house. I boxed them all up. It was exciting. And then we were like, how do we mail them? Like without it being a million dollars because it's so heavy, you know what yeah, I mean? Right. And, so, and then all this stuff happened with my business partner. And so I had to be like, okay, I need to change how my company runs. I need to think about like what I'm actually capable of as a solo person now that it's just me again. Right. I need to not be upset that it's changing and just ebb and flow with it. You know what I mean? Correct, correct. So I started talking to my following and just being like, what, what sort of things? Like I mentor, I like secretly mentor a lot of people. Like a lot of people call me in the middle of the night when they're fucked up. A lot of people reach out to me like, a lot of people are working on their sobriety and no one else knows but me. You know what I mean? Right. And so a profile that I really love that's super creative um, that I've admired for a long time, she actually brought up like coaching and stuff to me. And I was like, you think people would pay me for that? And she was like, yeah, like you do this for me for free. And I definitely think so. And like, that was like the spark I needed to be like, oh, maybe I could do that. And it was something like I've always wanted to do, but I've been too scared to. Um, but so yeah anyways so you're so coaching now that's exciting i think yeah. that's i think you'll be great yeah I'm, I'm excited um but it's interesting too because i've had some like imposter syndrome so i was like meditating on that and that uh, this new like gabby bernstein course came up and it was way out of my price range like two thousand american dollars and for a canadian girl in a pandemic it's like that ain't yeah. happening yeah. but i kept like it kept popping up and i I don't know why I just felt like I should reach out. And so I reached out and I told them about my story and about my company and they ended up, they ended up like helping me with it essentially. And so now I'm in this program that I didn't even realize is based around sobriety and coaching programs and like the universe just like helped me find it, you know? Right. So yeah, it's been, it's been cool and interesting and a lot of work, but honestly so rewarding. And this is starting to align with more of what your new passion is looking like. It's important to be able to acknowledge your growth. And when you mm -hmm. outgrow one thing and you're growing into another, I love it. Yeah. Is that shirt you're wearing is awesome. Is that yours? Uh, this one? No, not this one. This one's my partner. But this That's is hot. Yeah. Yeah, That's this is the... my... I'll show you these pants. These are, this is the, my friend's company, Gazzy. She makes all of the fun clothes I wear. But oh, like, nice. She, she makes men's clothes too, but honestly, like I, I swear, if you wear her stuff, you just, you cannot frown. It's impossible. <laughs> like, you yeah. smile all the time. I love that. I love that. And you know, one thing I want to say in closing that, I, that came to my mind with you in particular and, um, 
I, I could see a really cool movie about you. Like you're a star. I see your Thank star you. quality and your story from the beginning to the end is what, uh, what, what, you know, a film could be about something that's endearing yeah. how you struck even from being a young little girl rest trying to rescue your siblings and being creative and trying to figure out how to get them to a safe place mm -hmm. and being smarter than the authorities and having all of this mm -hmm. stuff i just you know you're a star and i'm so proud of you and everything that Thank you're you. doing and i'm happy and i hope i i you could consider me a friend in new york yeah. all the time new york loves you you always have family here and um and anything you ever need and I just keep up the good work. I was gonna say what's before soap is dope. I was mm -hmm. diagnosed, when I first got sober, I got diagnosed with pre-diabetes. So I had to change mm -hmm. my whole health. Cause you know, you get sober, you start eating crazy. I was eating everything, oh, yeah. milkshakes, sugar. sugar donuts, milkshakes, <laughs> cigarettes. I was just yeah. crazy. I was un <laughs> so, but that's when I started a company called, my main company is called Monk Fruit Energy. Yeah. And I was making, I was trying to create an energy drink that was low yeah. glycemic that mm -hmm. would help, um, you know, people. And that's when I got into the keto wellness and the yeah. ketogenic diet. So I was, uh, I was right where you're at too, like in the beginning. And then mm -hmm. I, I doubled down because I realized that that venture, I kind of outgrew that. And then I just mm -hmm. kind of settled in on soap is dope and wanted to streamline the message. So mm -hmm. I could relate to your story in that way, but I'm mm -hmm. definitely going to revisit monk fruit energy as a creative low glycemic yeah. drink. Um, I think that's a smart idea. Yeah, yeah. like I, I tried to, to digress, sorry to digress one more time, but like I did try to make a product on my own and I tried to make an alcohol-free scotch because I, there wasn't one. And okay. I was on a radio station and a guy who owned a brewery heard me talking about this. And so he was like, why don't you come down to my brewery? There's a gin still that I don't use. I'll teach you how to use it. You can make your own product. So I went down to this brewery. He taught me how to use the still. I started making this alcohol-free scotch and I named it Hopscotch. That's <laughs> and, awesome. Yeah, and it was, we got like the color right and we got the smell right. And then I ended up moving provinces. And so that journey kind of ended, but it is possible and I know how to do it. <laughs> hey, you know, hey, you got things. Keep that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, word, right? Keep that in the back pocket. Um, so look, what's in the future? What's in store now? Can you tell us before we go, what's Club Sofa? Yeah, so for me, like, like Sober Saturdays is amazing and I love holding Sober Saturdays events for sober people but the other thing that I realized too is like a lot of my friends even though they want to be sober they're not like super stoked to go and hang out with a bunch of sober people you know what I mean like they want to hang out with each other and all the other people they're hanging out with they just want to be sober while they're doing it yeah. and so I was having this issue of not my like not being able to get my friends to come to my events and I didn't really understand why and then the other thing too was like I was having this like sort of block because I felt like I was curating sober like strictly sober events and that was really wasn't like the type of event I wanted to go to either and so I had to have this moment where I was like okay yes I am sober I am known as the sober profile everyone knows me as being sober but I'm not just sober I'm also you know like I want to be I want to model I want to dance I want to do fashion I want to create earrings you know like I want to do all these other things too and I don't just want to put myself in a box and so at first I started to try and like advertise Club Sofa on Sober Saturdays as like a virtual streaming platform um, that you can go to online at any point. It's really awesome. But my sober community wasn't super stoked about it. It wasn't revolving around sober stuff. It was revolving around DJs. It was revolving around dancing and performances. It was revolving around harm reduction. You know what I mean? Right. So I got a lot of like pushback from people being like, well, you're not sober if you like to party that much. And I'm like, 
dude, I love to dance. Like, you're not going to convince me otherwise. Like, I don't know what to tell you. I'm going to keep going to festivals. I'm going to keep going to events. Um, and so I created this subsection of myself, essentially, um, which is a creative project that I work with on with other sober curious people. Um, and so essentially what it is, is it's a virtual platform. So Twitch is like, you can create your own TV show or like game show, essentially. Okay. So what it is, is like, I, like my partner's a DJ. I've started DJing now that I've become sober. This is our little DJ equipment. That's it's really what's funny. up, I'm right. Um, but yeah, so pretty much what happens is like, I get a group of people together. I get performers, we get DJs, we get um, models, we get uh, stylists, uh, we get makeup artists. And we all go down to essentially this big warehouse bar, this like underground bar that I found before COVID. And I rent out the space and we create like a virtual event. So essentially you can like log on to Twitch, which is like where you would watch the show. And then you would also log on to Zoom, which is like behind the scenes and you get to be involved and everyone gets to dress up. So it's like a virtual party essentially. So you get to like listen to music and like whatever we're doing, but you also get to hang out with other people online. And so Beautiful. we hold like two big events twice a month. And then I also do like living room sets. So like, I'll just be like in my house playing and you get to like talk to me and like, the more you watch, the more points you gain. And like with your points, you can buy things. And it's really silly. Like for like 50 points, you can like make me put on a wig or like for like a hundred points, you can request a song or just like weird things like that. And it's just like a really That's fun brilliant. way to be interactive. Yeah. And like, yeah, it's just cool to get other creatives together. And like, my big thing was like, I, I don't want to just like, it's like, I don't just want to tell people to get sober. Like my big thing is, is like, okay, now you're sober. Now what the fuck? And it's like, I, I find so much healing in being creative because as a child, I didn't have that opportunity whatsoever. And as a, a drinking adult, I didn't have the confidence or the understanding of how to be creative. And so it wasn't until I quit drinking that I was like, oh, now I have all this time and energy and I guess I'll just try and make something. <laughs> right, you're so creative. I love it. I love it. Oh, those, are, those earrings are beautiful also. Yeah, I made them. There we go. That's yeah, awesome. Right. You have a site where we go. I guess I'll put the the link in the show notes. Those Not are beautiful. Can you. you tell us before we go about everybody glows? Everybody glows. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> I love everybody glows. Um, I'm I'm excited that COVID happened because I got to experience Everybody Glows. So Everybody Glows is an 80s aerobics workout class that happens in Portland, Oregon. And I was obsessed with this class and this woman's energy, Frankie. She's so exciting. Um, but her classes weren't online before because she had a studio in Portland. But then when COVID hit, she started putting all her stuff online. And for me, one of the biggest things about being able to go out and socialize as a sober person was getting reconnected with my silly side and not feeling awkward for saying or doing silly things and so for my sober profile it's like I, I it's really important to exercise and to move your body and whatnot but for me it's like I really want people to like get into this silly aspect so we can be silly together so like you get to dress up in 80s clothes every single event like she does themed 90s ones she does like uh, like all sorts of different ones and then it's like 80s music and it's 80s aerobics and it's amazing and you can't help but feel good after and it's like so silly because you're doing 80s aerobics yeah. but it's just like it, it was like exercise that I wanted to do you know and I wanted to see my friends dress up and it was like we're all at home doing nothing anyways like let's do 80s aerobics right right yeah. that's awesome that's awesome so you're you're using all of your resources 
to mm. bring beautiful experiences to the world and enhance yeah. people's lives for the positive. You mm-hmm. transcended the trauma of your past. You're not, mm-hmm. you went from the, the being a victim to being victorious, right? Mm-hmm. You shifted the victim mindset into empowerment. You took your power yeah. back. You're in the process of always doing it. I'm so happy for you. I love your beautiful dogs. <laughs> They're so cute. They're cute, right? Uh, so, uh, um, Katie, you're, you, you inspired me every Every day. Before we go, any message to young women out there who may be currently in an abusive situation? Anyone that's a, to the foster community, anyone that's struggling, can you give us some closing um, inspirational um, words for anyone out there that may be struggling? Yeah, just like don't give up on yourself. Don't let people's words tell you that you can't do something. And if you find that you're stuck in a situation that you're incapable of getting yourself out of right now, visualize your way out of it like visualize who you want to be visualize the things you'll do visualize the values that you have and like what you're learning right now maybe not be may not be what you like but it's teaching you what not to do when you get out of that situation so just be brave and persevere persevere ladies and gentlemen you heard it from the one and only katie deegan herself of sober saturday she is a true star a true bright light and i think katie's gonna go real far and look this lady's a star so look out for her you're listening to the sober as though podcast go in peace i love you all and i'll catch you guys on the other side thank you thanks for having me
Let's keep it real, son. You know what I'm saying?